A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week we're exploring the wild things we do after being dumped and the creative ways we humans deal with breakups. Our first story is from Anna Peterson. Anna studies parasites and pathogens in everything from salamanders to rats to humans. In her free time, she enjoys hanging out with her dog Hank and running long distances very slowly. Her story was recorded at our go-to spot in Atlanta, Waller's Coffee Shop, and her story is all about those sometimes rash decisions we make after a breakup. You know, like giving yourself bangs or signing up to run a marathon in less than a month. (laughs) Here's Anna. I'm lying in my tiny little bed in my tiny little bedroom, staring up at the ceiling, and I'm having a lot of feelings. I feel nervous and afraid and excited and hopeful, and it's just all welling in my chest, and I just can't keep it in anymore, and I whisper out into the dark how much I love this person that's lying here next to me. And I hear the sound of my heart and my breath and that deeply uncomfortable silence of somebody pretending to be asleep. But I am undeterred because I am in love. So I spend the next couple of years trying to convince this person to love me in the way that I love him. And I'm a couple months away from finishing my master's degree, just a few months out from graduation. I don't know what I'm gonna do next, but I know that wherever I am, I wanna be where he is. And he is making these grand plans to move to Brazil next year to work on his PhD research. And so I'm making these grand plans to go along with. And then one day we sit down and we talk about our grand plans and it becomes clear that his vision of his future does not include me. And so that's the end of that. And I am devastated. I am so sad. But even more than that, I just feel so small and diminished. And I spend all this time trying to prove to this person that I'm worthy of his care and affection. And it just feels like no matter what I do, I am just never, ever going to be enough. And I'm lost. And the only thing I can think to do is to run as far away from the pain as possible. So I apply to every single job I can find and I managed to land a position working for two national wildlife refuges in remote Alaska. And I think this is perfect. I am going to move to Alaska and I'm going to become such an incredible badass. This guy is gonna rue the day. He will rue the day that he ever let me go. So I pack my bags, I get on a plane and the further and further north I head, the landscape outside the window, the airplane window is just wider and wider as we pass these like, incredible mountain ranges just covered in snow and ice and I can see the glaciers from 30,000 feet and I start to think what have I done (laughs) and then we land down in Anchorage and I get into this tiny little plane that's taking me out to the town where I'm going to be living and this town is off the road system 
So what that means is the only way in or out is by boat or by plane. And once you're there, there's about 20 miles of road that goes out to the lake and to the dump and to nowhere else. And I envision that I'm going to be living in some little cabin in the woods, communing with nature. And then I get to my housing, and it's the basement of this like government fourplex. Um, and I have no internet or TV or cell phone service there. Uh, but I can hear everything that everyone else that lives above and below and around me is saying and doing at all times. And I go into my little bunk bed, and I just have never felt so alone. But I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm going to go into work. I'll make some new friends there. I'm going to build a new life. And then I get into the office, and every single one of my coworkers is a middle-aged man. And uh, they don't really know what I'm doing there. I don't really know what I'm doing there. I've been sent in from this like national office to come in and write a report about the wilderness area. And they don't really get it. They just kind of shove me in the corner. Um, and ignore me. And so I spend most of my days just sort of clicking through Excel, counting down the hours until I can walk to the public library and go on the internet and look at pictures of my ex-boyfriend on Facebook, <laughs> like a badass. <laughs> and I continue on that way for a couple weeks. And then I hear that I'm going to be getting a new roommate in the basement. Um, that the refuge has hired a new manager who's coming in to take over the whole place. And this person is moving up from Arizona and their house isn't ready yet. So in the meantime, they're moving in the basement with me. And that's how I meet Susanna. And it becomes quickly clear that unlike me, Susanna is an actual badass. Uh, she's worked her way up for her whole career from a lowly biologist now to be head of this national wildlife refuge that's the size of the state of Rhode Island, becoming one of the only, if not the only, woman in the state in that position. And I don't know if it's just because we're stuck in this basement together or because she takes pity on me, but Susanna starts dragging me around with her everywhere she goes. And it's awesome because Susanna has a truck. Uh, so Susanna and I, we drive out to the lake, we drive out to the dump. We drive out to the dump. There's not a whole lot of places for us to drive to. Um, but then we drive into work. And when we get into work, she tells all these middle-aged men what they should be doing, including that they should start taking me with them when they go out into the field to do their work. Because Susanna sees the value of what I'm doing. And she understands that if I'm going to be writing this report about wilderness, that I need to be able to get out and experience it for myself. So I get a ride in my first float plane, these little three-seater planes that take off from and land in the water. And we fly up to this incredibly remote glacial lake that's just neon blue with the like silt from the glaciers and these like incredible steep gray mountains all around. But I can hardly even see it because I'm just so focused on trying to prove that I belong here. And I'm, I just, I don't want anyone to think that I don't know what I'm doing, so I don't ask any questions. And then all of a sudden, these middle-aged men are asking me to hand them pieces of equipment or to mark waypoints on the GPS, and I'm just like caught off guard and overwhelmed, and I just feel so stupid and silly, and all I want to do is get back home to the basement and be by myself. But Susanna doesn't let me. She continues to just drag me around. And one day, uh, we get invited over to Pat's house. 
And Pat, he is the head biologist. He's the most intimidating of all of them. He's got this like steel gray mustache. I've never seen him smile. He's always got a pistol at his hip. And he's invited us over because he's caught a whole bunch of fish. And he's giving some to Susanna to get her through her first winter in Alaska. And we show up to his house and there's just wheelbarrows full of these like giant salmon all over his lawn. They're like the size of a baby. Um, and he hands us these long knives with like wooden handles that he whittled himself. And he shows us how to cut open the guts um, and then cut along the backbone to cut them into fillets so that we can, you know, vacuum seal them and keep them for winter. And I am just so bad at this. It's like slippery and slimy and their little fish eyeballs are staring at you. And every single cut I make, I'm just like apologizing for messing this up and doing it wrong. And finally, Pat just has to stop me. And he's like, Anna, I don't know why you would expect to be good at something that you have never done before. And then I look over at Susanna and like her mingled fish doesn't look any better than mine but she's just over there happily hacking away. And I realized maybe that's the thing that makes Susanna an actual badass, is not that she has a truck or she can tell people what to do, but that she's just not so concerned about trying to prove anything to anybody. She just is. So I spend the rest of my summer trying a little harder to be. And on one of my very last days before I leave town, Pat comes into the office and he's like, Anna, Susanna, come with me. We're going to the lake. So we pack up the truck, we pack up the boat, and we drive to the lake. And what we're doing is we are looking for Kitzlitz's merlets. And if you don't know, a merlet is a type of bird. They're a little bit similar to a puffin, but unlike puffins, which are colorful and live in big colonies by the coast, merlets are small and brown and they live by themselves on the tundra. And as a result, there's not a whole lot known about these birds, except for that their uh, populations are thought to be in decline. And so we're out at the lake because Pat's been hearing that there's been records of these birds out there, and most, in, in particular, juvenile merlets. And knowing where juveniles is, is important uh, because that's an indication that this is probably breeding habitat. And breeding habitat is really key when you're thinking about conservation of a species. So we're up at the lake trying to prove there's these little juvenile birds up there. And we arrive, it's early in the morning, and the lake is just socked in fog. But Pat is undeterred, and we just start doing transects back and forth, back and forth, back and forth across the lake. Uh, and I'm just st staring at like a wall of fog with a pair of binoculars, and everything seems hopeless. But slowly, the fog begins to lift, and I'm just looking at the way the clouds sit on the mountains and the dark green of the trees that ring the lake and the little bits of color of the tundra as it starts to turn for the fall. And I set those binoculars down. I recognize that I am no good at using them and I don't even care. Instead, I just breathe. And then I hear Susanna yell. She's like, wait, wait, I think I see something, something across the lake. And then pack wheels the boat around and we beeline towards some little thing that's bobbing out on the water and we pull up sideways next to it and he's like, Anna, Anna, grab it, grab it. And I reach over the boat and I grab this thing out of the water and I put it down on the, on the seat in front of us and there it is, a dead merlet. Definitive proof that they exist here. 
A couple days after that, I headed north to spend the next few months at a different wildlife refuge. And then I moved down to Louisiana to start my PhD. But in between, I stopped back by Colorado, which is where I had done my master's. And while I was there, I reached out to that ex and I was like, to see if he wanted to meet up. And he was like, yeah, sure, I'll be at this coffee shop. You can come by if you want to. So I walk over there and as I'm walking over, I just have all this like anxiety and fear in my chest. And the closer I get, it just like sinks down into my stomach like dread and every single step I take just feels so heavy. And then I get there and we sit down and we start to talk. And he doesn't have a whole lot to say for himself. He never ended up moving to Brazil. And instead, I just take up space and I tell him about Susanna and how because of her, I got to do all these incredible things. I've spent 10 days out on the coast looking at seabirds. And I spent four days on an inflatable kayak with a middle-aged man floating down a river from its headwaters until it meets the Bering Sea. And I told him about Pat and about this bird we found and how he was working to write up this report and how in some small way it felt like it contributed to the protection of this little thing. And as I walked away, I would love to say that I felt confident and healed and like I never thought or felt sad about him again, but that is not true. But I did feel a little bit bigger thinking about how sometimes your heart gets broken and you can feel so lost and sad and alone. But sometimes you meet a badass who drags you out onto a boat and together you find that floating dead bird that you are looking for. <laughs> and I think that's enough. That was Anna. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but we know that can be a bit intimidating and might not speak to you. So maybe becoming a story clutter donor is more your speed. Story clutter donors play an increasingly important role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. Our next story is from Moya McTeer. Moya is an astrophysicist, folklorist, and science communicator. You might also know her from her podcast, Exolor and Pale Blue Pod, or the mythology show on PBS called Fate and Fabled, or her hit book, The Milky Way, an autobiography of our galaxy. We've recorded Moya's story at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, at our special annual fundraiser show, The Proton Prom. Her story is something anyone who's been heartbroken can relate to. It's all about how healing from a heartbreak is a journey unto itself. Here's Moya. Hi, everyone. I am Moya McTeer, and I have been in love twice. (laughs) 
the first time ended with a heartbreak that hurt way more than it should have, like a paper cut, you know? We met freshman year of college, and we fell in love over Key and Peele skits and, and BuzzFeed articles posted to each other's Facebook walls. He was the first person I ever imagined a future with, and almost a year into dating, he came to visit me for my birthday over winter break, and just a couple days after leaving, he broke up with me over Skype. Yeah, boo that guy. I remember crying to my mom that it felt like my physical heart had taken a beating, but when I got back to campus, I didn't have time to dwell on anything as ephemeral as feelings. I had classes to focus on, so instead I just chopped off most of my hair, got a couple of stress tattoos and piercings, which I don't regret, but it did get expensive. <laughs> so instead I took out most of my pain on the rugby pitch, and I don't know if you know this, but rugby, very good at helping you express emotions not so good at helping you learn from them. So I still blamed myself for the breakup, and I had never thought that way before. Even as a lone black girl in rural Pennsylvania, I never doubted my worth as a human being. If anything, I was too confident, especially when it came to my intelligence. But a year at Harvard had already stripped away enough of that confidence that when I got dumped without explanation, I assumed it was because I wasn't enough not pretty or funny or lovable enough, whatever that means. The second time I fell in love felt more solid than anything I had ever experienced from the very beginning. I moved to New York in 2016, excited to casually date big city hotties and solve the mysteries of the universe in grad school. But that universe had other plans. One of my friends from college moved to the city about a month later, and without meaning to, we just spent so much time together that we both caught the feels. On the surface, we didn't make much sense. Strangers would tell him that he looked like a Republican, and his friends described him as a robot, while I'm told all the time that I have a resting friendly face. <laughs> But everything between us just clicked so effortlessly. He was funny and thoughtful and kind. We shared values. We laughed together easily. And I thought we were just different enough that we could do anything together, even build IKEA furniture without fighting. And we did. <laughs> we said, I love you after a month. We moved in together after a year. And I knew I had found my person. In grad school, I was also trying to find my calling as an astrophysicist and a science communicator, but those insecurities I picked up in college, they made me doubt that I was the right person to answer that call. In between classes on galaxy evolution and the interstellar medium, I fell deep into anxiety and depression. I cried so often at work that I built a little crying nest under my desk out of comfy blankets. And when it got bad enough that I thought I wouldn't survive it on my own, I sought out therapy and medication. That's what you're supposed to do. My partner was really supportive the whole time. He would spend hours talking me out of my depressive spirals and hyping up my accomplishments. But he also said he was starting to resent the dark thoughts that clouded my mind. That's not what you want to hear. I promised him that I would try harder, that I would get better at controlling my emotions because he was my best friend, and the idea of a future without him seemed too bleak to even consider. Right before the world shut down in 2020, I signed my first book deal to write the Milky Way's autobiography. Thank you. Notice I said first, there's more coming. <laughs> um, but in order to write that book, I had to have confidence in myself as a science communicator, and that was the moment I knew I could make it. 
If only I could get out of my own way. Years of studying astronomy gave me all the science information I needed, but I still had to spend a lot of time reflecting on the mindset of the Milky Way. What might it actually feel like to be an intelligent creature more than 100,000 light years wide and 12 billion years old? What I discovered, or decided, was that galaxies struggle with much the same stuff we do. They have loneliness, they have failures, their peers are cruel to them, but it exists on a scale that dwarfs ours. A typical spiral galaxy like the Milky Way will spend billions of years repeating the cycle of creating new stars, getting attached to them, and then watching them die. Most of the interactions galaxies have with each other are violent and greedy, ripping each other apart until the victor can feed off of the loser's gas. And as far as we can tell, pretty much every galaxy has a hungry monster in its belly called a supermassive black hole that can literally strangle a galaxy of its gas until it can't make any new stars. And yet our galaxy continues to forge its own path through the universe with the most impressive surety of self. The Milky Way knows who it is, and it loves itself fiercely. I spent a year and a half pretending to be that lonely galaxy floating in the universe, and over time, my worldview gradually expanded beyond the typical human scales. I zoomed out, and I started to see myself as a teeny tiny cog in a great machine, so it's fine if I make mistakes. After all, I'm only human. And the more time I spent pretending to be the aggressively confident Milky Way, the more my own self-esteem improved. When I missed a meeting, I stopped saying, I suck. And I started saying, oh, I'm awesome. I have too many meetings to keep track of. <laughs> Thanks to this book, I had finally found the type of peace and confidence that I needed to crawl out of my depression hole, just like I promised I would. And four and a half years after I confessed to my partner that I had crush-like feelings, we proposed to each other in our living room. Yeah, it was really cute. We started to talk about a celestial-themed wedding, and I bought a beautiful star-studded veil, and I hid it in our closet as a surprise. <laughs> I was climbing towards a better mental state, but the next year was really tough for him. He was struggling with his transition to a new career as a rapper, I know, <laughs> but I did really think he had potential. And at the same time, his mom revealed that she fundamentally disapproved of our relationship and of me as a person. He thought that the problem would go away if he just ignored it. And obviously that's not true. I think we can all agree that's not the case. <laughs> so after months of my begging, he finally agreed to try family therapy and it worked. In the final days of summer, he told me he was feeling better about both life and us. Suddenly, it's a crisp October Sunday, and he is sitting on the couch watching a football game when I say, we need to talk about this wedding. It's supposed to happen in two weeks. We talked about eloping in the park, but then life got too hectic, so we didn't plan, but now is the time. He pauses the game. He takes a deep breath, and he says, He's been feeling concerned about our relationship for a while. He pulls out his phone and starts reading a note of breakup thoughts to me. Yeah, this isn't weird for him. He often writes down difficult conversations before he has them. But I ask, how long is a while? And he says months. I start replaying the last couple of months in my head my book launch, our sixth anniversary, his album release,
And I am too stunned in the moment to actually ask anything out loud, so I just listen to him read his sentences from his phone. And all of them paint me as the problem in our relationship. A year ago, I might have agreed with him, but I have done the work. I'm no longer so quick to believe bad things about myself. So in my head, I'm thinking, you're wrong. All of this is wrong. But you know what? He's not interested in hearing my side of things. He's already packed a suitcase. He walks out of our apartment and my entire world changes in a single moment. I lose my best friend, a second family I had grown to love, and a joint future that I cherished. I feel betrayed, I feel blindsided, but I can't quite conjure any anger, mostly just confusion. So I call him the next day and I ask, why? Why are you throwing away this beautiful life we've built together? And on the call, I take notes. Because I know I will want to remember exactly what he says. Things like, you're not as interesting as you used to be. You eat too much. And you're not steel sharpening my steel. <laughs> I mean, after the call, I feel conflicted. On one hand, finally angry, because how dare he say those things? And on the other, grateful, because in hindsight, all of his flags have redshifted. I make a playlist that alternates between fuck you and hallelujah, and I call it good riddance. <laughs> but on some third metaphorical hand, I feel deep despair. I fear I won't be able to get by without him and his support, and really, I am worried that I have just tricked all of my friends into loving me, because the person who knows me best in the entire world has decided I'm not worth fighting for. This wound goes way deeper than a paper cut. It's like that scene in a movie where someone gets sliced in half by a blade so sharp they don't even realize what's happened. But once I do realize, oh, those tears, they come unbidden and they don't stop. I spend most of that week in bed, except for my daily walks in Central Park that leave me too exhausted to do anything too rash. But I do post a few videos on TikTok of myself crying and processing the breakup. And you know what happens? My nana follows me. My grandmother followed me on TikTok, which is not what you want on that platform <laughs> at all. But that week, I'm scheduled to talk about my book at the Ottawa Writers Festival. And he plans to get the rest of his stuff while I'm gone. In Canada, I see an old rugby teammate who reminds me that there was a time before this relationship. And when I read my writing at the festival in front of a crowd of people who only see me as an exciting new author and not some fragile, heartbroken husk, I remember that I still have plenty of life to live after it. In the haughty tone that I have given the Milky Way, I say, I am space. I am made of space and I am surrounded by space. I am the greatest galaxy who has ever lived. Yeah. And in that moment, I recognize the power in that delusional galactic confidence, the type of confidence that little Moya had. So I return from Ottawa a week after the breakup to an apartment that is pretty much empty. It's half empty, and it doesn't feel like home anymore. I say it's empty, but he left most of the furniture behind because he's not handling this breakup like a jerk. But his books are gone. And his side of the dresser is empty, and all of our lovey-dovey art is missing from the walls. 
So I take a breath, and instead of ignoring my feelings or drowning in them, I ask myself, WWMWD, what would the Milky Way do? The Milky Way would have faith in its permanence compared to this temporary discomfort. It would commit to living fully and without self-judgment, and most of all, it would tell any disparaging voices to shut the fuck up because it is the greatest who has ever lived. So that's what I choose to do. <laughs> that was Moya. If you'd like to learn more about her, you can visit our website, storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Clatter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclatter.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to a recording session of one of our shows or want to start your own Story Clatter show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. The Story Clatter is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Mesa Saleta and Kelly Vinyl and me. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Bernson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week I'll be back with stories about food and science. It'll be delicious. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>